Hello and welcome to the Business Podcast. I'm Adit Chakravorty. This week, Britain's biggest union versus the world's favourite airline. The British Airways strike is turning into political drama. Is there any chance of a happy ending? And fear the repo, how the dark arts of accountancy were used to keep billions of dollars of liabilities off balance sheets and failed bank leanings. Plus, we look ahead to next week's budget, just as Brussels spouts some unwelcome advice to Alice Darling. And Greece is the word on the lips of every Eurocrat. Can their pledge to support the single currency's ailing member calm the markets? This is The Business from The Guardian. Joining me in the pod today, we have a panel just too big to fail. From The Guardian's business desk, Philip Inman, Dan Milmo and Dan Roberts. We're going to start with BA and a strike threatening to engulf the Labour government. Gordon Brown said this week that the cabin crew walkout planned for this weekend is deplorable. But the industrial action had been organised by Unite, the Labour Party's biggest donor. And as if that wasn't enough, its political director is one Charlie Whelan, once one of Brown's closest advisers. Here's BA's side of the story from Chief Exec Willie Walsh. Without question, British Airways has done everything in our power to reach agreement with this trade union. We have been in discussions and negotiations with the trade union for over a year now. Uh, And this is a year where we face the most significant crisis that this company has ever seen. And right throughout that period, our focus has been to secure jobs in British Airways. None of our cabin crew have been asked to take a pay cut. None of our cabin crew have faced uh, compulsory redundancy. We've been able to achieve significant change and significant savings by working with our cabin crew and other people across the business. Dan Milmo, as transport correspondent, you followed every twist and turn of the story. Run me a quick truth check over what Willie Walsh just said. Well, certainly uh, BA has been in talks for a, a long time and they certainly have gone a long way to... Um, getting some sort of deal agreed. I think it's fair to say from my perspective, having followed the talks over that period of time, the Unite Trade Union has certainly made quite an effort. And the deal that was on the table last week and was withdrawn uh, at the 11th hour by BA, uh, which is perhaps, um, the history will tell us, one of the most significant events over the past year of talks, perhaps the critical event, that deal, you've got to say, has seen Unite back down quite a bit from its original demands. Uh, so you could argue that Unite's gone quite a way as well. No pay cuts for staff? No, no pay cuts for staff uh, from BA's point of view. Ironically, Unite's offer did include a pay cut for staff and also did include putting more staff uh, back on flights, and therefore, which would probably result in a, a slightly better service in economy class cabins um, and uh, elsewhere in the aircraft. So Unite have argued actually you know, we're, we're taking a pay cut and improving service standards for customers, whereas BA's offer doesn't quite do the same. What happens next? Um, What happens next is certainly I've just uh, checked my BlackBerry and there's uh, lots more statements winging around from both companies accusing the other one of destroying Britain. So there's going to be a lot more rhetoric over the next few days. I mean, unfortunately, if you're reading between the lines of that rhetoric and it's so loud and brash, it's sometimes difficult to do so. What it means is that we really are looking at a strike going ahead on Saturday what passengers need to listen out for over the next three days is silence. If no one's making any statements or appearing on the 24-hour news channels, then it's possible that last-ditch talks are underway. And I think that there will inevitably be attempts to do this over the next 72 hours, and therefore perhaps um, a deal can be reached. But with three days to go in industrial dispute terms, that really is perilously close, particularly with uh, a business as complicated logistically as BAs. They've gone through... uh, 
a, a lot of wrangling over the past uh, few weeks to train up auxiliary crew, get a new schedule in place for this weekend and probably the weekend following when the next strike is. To unwind all of that is a lot of effort and um, we really need to see some movement on both sides very soon. Dan Roberts, Head of Business, do you deplore Gordon Brown's description of a planned walkout as deplorable? I think he um, could have chosen his words more carefully. I think the difficulty for um, the unions at the moment, which um, is true not just of BA, but actually Royal Mail, where the parallels are very striking, is you've got got all sorts of professions and industries at the moment where gradually over years and years and years the um, the security that people used to take for granted the sorts of working conditions that people fought very hard to establish are getting eroded they're getting eroded partly by the recession they're getting eroded partly by structural changes in the airline industry the rise of low-cost carriers and so forth this is a very these are very long-run things and they're very real and and very justified and I think those are the sorts of things that Brown should have acknowledged. On the other hand, they, they're very difficult to manufacture flashpoints to which you can mobilise not only support within the union, but crucially you can mobilise public support for. And I think that both where the Royal Mail and, the, and, um, and, and Unite have, 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 have struggled with BA is convincing the outside world that actually what they're choosing to strike about is something that commands broader, broader um, support. In the long run, they're absolutely right, I think, and I think they're reflecting the kind of anxieties that almost all workers have got at the moment. I mean, very few industries offer that that, that protection, but it, it it's very hard to sort of to distill their grievances down into a ten-word soundbite. And in this time when everybody is 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 you know going through a recession and people are very uh, everybody's feeling pain it's very easy to sort of um to, to knock the um the strikes and i think that's where both they both lost that public argument philip i mean one thing that's quite striking uh from the reporting media reporting of of, of this dispute is how much the media talk about the how customers are uh, having their rights infringed whether it's their their honeymoon is being wrecked or they can't go on that dream holiday i mean what do you make of that where we can't deal with we can't deal with grievances of workers, but we can just deal with disappointments of consumers. Well, I think one of the problems we've got is that, you know, you talk about a consumer as one thing. You know, lots of people conceive of someone who's going off on a flight as someone who must be relatively wealthy and uh, uh, and will take against them. Others will picture them as, like you said, someone on a on a romantic holiday, on a wedding, on, a, on all those kinds of things, and all our hearts and sympathy should be with them. And uh, and I think you see that played out in different newspapers, depending generally on their sympathies uh, for whichever audience. I think in terms of consumer rights, I think you'll find that while that was a very, very big issue in the 90s, we've not seen it so much in recent times. Consumer rights are something that need to be circumscribed. You know, we talk about a lot about choice and a lot of politicians still talk about choice. But I think people are seeing that choice isn't necessarily the greatest thing. Um, when it comes to BA, um, you know, we are still, in a way, still thinking of that choice. You know, we want to drive down the cost. We want to choose between the airline that's almost the cheapest. I mean, I think that's one of the problems that cabin crew face, is that choice is still a big issue in airlines, and they're still struggling with that. But I think there's also that sense that um, people are wondering what they can achieve. I mean, I think if you've got a if you've got an employer that is purely acting 
in a vacuum and, and isn't facing competition from, from low-cost airlines, then you can, you can see how the power of organised labour can be for the, for the good and can help sort of um, uh, maintain or, or increase uh, working standards. But when it's very apparent that the answer, what, the, you know, what happens if, if BA kind of descends into six months of strike, well, basically BA continues to spiral down and all the, all the, all the, the, the traffic goes to Ryanair where they get paid, you know, two-thirds as much or whatever people are asking themselves well actually is this in the interests of the, the employees as well I mean is this actually where is where is this going I mean people can see the anger and I think people I think people have more sympathy actually for for for, for airline stewards and and and, and post postal workers than than the, perhaps the media gives them credit for but they are asking themselves the question well okay but if you get what you want how does that how does that solve the problem that you're still in this industry facing these really big external challenges this has been a particularly rancorous dispute compared with other um, disputes within BA that I've covered over the past uh, few years. And it's, it's going to blow up again within, within the next 12 months, whether or not there's a resolution today, tomorrow, next week. Why? Just because um, there's structural problems facing high-cost airlines? Yeah, there's going to have to be more changes forced through at BA. There's going to have to be a proce- continual process of uh, whittling down costs or reforming working structures, which is kind of what this one is about. This is, No one's been laid off. This has just been about reducing staffing levels on flights, but it's going to happen again. And at the moment, the relationship between um, Unite and BA, certainly in the cabin crew, and as we're probably going to learn over the next few weeks, the ground staff level as well, is so um, dysfunctional that... Um, you know that's the real challenge facing facing Willie Walsh. He's got to. He's actually got to find a way of setting up a proper um, channel of communication between both sides. Well, for more on this, go to guardian.co.uk/ba. And there was more uncomfortable reading this week's papers for Labour. A report from the European Commission says that the government isn't doing enough to cut Britain's deficit. Having ignored the advice from Brussels before last November's pre-budget report, Alistair Darling has already said he'll pay no heed to it this time either. But with an election looming, what will he say next Wednesday? Down in our newsroom, here's what the experts think. I'm Polly Toynbee, it's the budget next week, and here are some things I think that uh, Labour could do very usefully. I think they could announce the establishment of a high pay commission that would set benchmarks for what top pay should be within companies and where shareholders should step in when it becomes excessive. Not necessarily legally binding, but the beginning of a process of trying to do something about outrageous pay at the top that people are really indignant about. As far as taxes are concerned, I think they should do capital gains tax. I think they should admit that now is the time to put it back to where Nigel Lawson had it, equal with the top level of tax. So it would now go up to 50% for capital gains so as to stop very high earners disguising their income as capital gains and instead of paying their 50%, only paying 18%. I think they should look very seriously at the Lib Dem suggestion of raising the tax threshold for all low earners uh, so that nobody pays tax under £10,000. But it would be very important to cap that higher up so that the tax allowance didn't expand for people who were in the top tax band anyway. That's just a few thoughts. I'm Martin Kettle. Pre-election budgets are normally giveaway occasions. They're designed to win elections by giving things to the voters. This is one pre-election budget, however, where that's not really an option because the deficit is so huge and the pressures uh, on uh, the economy are so great that really that's uh, not going to be possible. 
I think this is going to be a budget where uh, Alistair Darling is really going to have to work very hard to conjure something very major in any direction because he's already committed himself to increases in national insurance in the pre-budget report. That's the big tax increase. I think he'll try to be as uh, specific as he possibly can be but um, about the different uh, departmental spending uh, options over the next uh, four years. But basically, uh, everybody knows that this is the pre-election budget and after the election there'll be a post-election budget, whoever wins the election, and that will be much tougher, much, much more focused and uh, will, will really set the agenda not for an election but for a parliament. And next week, we'll have a special edition of this podcast available in the afternoon of the budget. But Brussels, despite its slapdown to Britain this week, is much more worried about Greece. George Papandreou's government in Athens has to find debt repayments of about €20 billion due in April and May. Eurozone member states are vowed to step in if Greece asks for help, with everyone looking to the deep pockets of Germany. But in making this show strength, Brussels hopes the markets will be calmed and no deal will be needed after all. The chief economist at the Centre for European Reform is Simon Tilford. He thinks Greece ultimately will need help. I think it will be needed, yes. They've pledged, although this is not a done deal yet. I mean, it's quite unclear. It does appear that they will provide loans, bilateral loans, rather than loan guarantees, uh, which would get round uh, the, the constitutional bar on bailouts of Eurozone member states. So they, that does look as though they've, they've, they've addressed that particular conundrum. But uh, it's not clear that there is actually agreement yet. I think uh, it's beholden on the German authorities to try and influence the debate about this in Germany. Germany has benefited enormously from the Eurozone. It's, 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 profited by, it's enabled it to hold its costs down and boost its market share dramatically within the Eurozone because its cost, its inflation rate, has been rising less rapidly than those of, uh, of, of nearly all of its trade partners within the Eurozone. It's benefited massively. Without the export growth that Germany has seen to other members of the Eurozone over the last few years, the German economy would not have grown. So they, they have to explain that, that it would be in Germany's interests, Germany's economic interests and their own, hence, interests, to prevent uh, this crisis in the Eurozone dragging on and dragging in other economies such as Spain, Portugal, Italy. Because what we're now seeing is, what we risk seeing is a self-defeating cycle of competitive devaluations within the Eurozone where every economy is trying to grow its way out of this by boosting exports. By boosting exports, in order to boost exports, they're, they're looking at sort of wage cuts effectively or cuts in real wages. Now, it's okay for one economy to do that. Germany has done that for years within the Eurozone. It could do that because other economies were not doing that. So it could hold its costs down and rely on stronger exports in order to offset the impact of falling real wages or stagnant real wages on domestic demand. But obviously, it's a zero-sum game. It's not as if every economy within the Eurozone can uh, generate growth or stimulus by, by relying on export income, unless, of course, the Eurozone starts uh, running a massive trade surplus with the rest of the world. So I think there's a very, very real risk of a double-dip recession. I think domestic demand is going to be chronically weak across the Eurozone for many years to come. Dan Roberts, how do you judge the way that the Euro Club has handled the Greek problem? Should we give it null points? <laughs> I think they've finally um, come round to the inevitable, which is they recognise that they do have to act as one on this. They're not in it together. They're not in it alone. It's just taken Germany a while to kind of swallow the bitter pill. Um, I think right from the start, this is a really big test for the future of the single currency. It was also a really big test for the future of the European Union. Uh, I always felt that it was inevitable that eventually there would, there would have to be a, a 
bailout of the, of the Greeks. Uh, I, I think it's just it's such a blow to uh, to Germany in particular because um, the Germans convince themselves there is this narrative that they sacrificed an awful lot to go into the single currency. Actually, as your contributor has just pointed out, the Germans have actually gained an awful lot from 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 the single market too. And I think that it's just it's taken a while for that kind of the quid pro quo of of, of being in in the euro to sort of sink in. Philip, I mean, if you look at uh, the Greeks fa- who are going to be facing what their third round of austerity cuts, and the Irish who've got a, a sort of scorched earth approach to budget making at the moment, you must wonder what the the weaker, the poorer countries on the periphery of the eurozone actually get out of being in a single currency. Well, they got a tremendous boom to start with, didn't they? Um, they got a bubble. Because they got low interest rates yeah. and they guaranteed low interest rates, and so they got a huge amount of investment. The problem was that so much of that investment was in property and uh, all those and tourism, and obviously that can evaporate as quickly as it arrives. Um, and that's where the Spanish are. Uh, the Greeks obviously had their own problems. I mean, it was fantastic seeing that they were revealed to be something like the seventh largest arms buyer in the world because they're absolutely paranoid about the Turks. Um, you know, and these kinds of things are things they just can't carry on doing. Um, and I think we're all in that situation where we've all grown used to buying certain things and enjoying certain things. And actually, we've all been borrowing. Um, whether the Germans think they've been borrowing or not, they have. In, as, your, as our contributor explained by, um, by other people not doing it, they've been able to sell to everybody else at, at cheaper prices than they would otherwise have been able to do. So we're all in this together. We've all been overdoing it, and we've all got to club together to work it out. And I think a lot of countries are struggling to come to terms with that. Dan Milmo, I mean, one of the things that come through in that clip we played at the beginning was that the, the, the sort of economic model uh, underpinning the Eurozone is, is not really sustainable because what you really want is for Germany to behave more like the Greeks and for the Greeks to behave more like the Germans. Yeah, in an ideal world, that would... Uh, that coming a weird to, looking place <laughs> Yeah, it, it would be weird. I mean, certainly they'd all have the same national dress because you need... Um, you need political integration. I mean, the, one of the problems here, well, sorry, a, a beautiful benefit of democracy and Greece being the home of that, um, is that you get to determine your own direction as much as possible. And it seems to, at the root of the scenario you've just outlined, is, is closer political integration to go alongside this economic integration. And that, that, that just won't happen. OK. And there's more on this story at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. Now, a blistering report into the failure of US banking giant Lehman Brothers was released last week and, as one judge said, it reads like a bestseller. At 2,000 pages, it's a pretty hefty bestseller, but it details what Lehman's own staff called an accounting gimmick called Repo 105. The device allowed the bank to artificially reduce its balance sheet and significantly was signed off by a London law firm Linklaters, as well as the auditor Ernst Young. Philip Inman, your staff for 10, what is a Repo 105? Well, a Repo 105 is um, a device, and a quite a long-standing one, something that they've used for a long time, where you basically... All banks or just Lehman Brothers? uh, Lots of banks, um, where you've got quarterly results, which have been something that's been going on in the States for some time, and each quarter you want to fiddle the figures on what you present to your investors. And here you have a device which allows you to basically reduce the amount of liabilities you have on your bank sheet. You can put them into a special vehicle and you in effect sell them to a special vehicle except you don't really because you've got an implicit guarantee that you can buy them back you can also sign into the contract that you're going to earn money from it even though you've sold it 
If you think of it like a football player, where you sell the football player, but you sign into the contract that should that football player then go on to be transferred to another team or score a certain amount of goals or do a whole host of other things, you get a kickback. Well, Lehman's was doing a similar kind of thing. So it would sell on this um, uh, this uh, amount of debt and it would then say, right, we want a certain amount back um, uh, because it's got a 4% return on it. Well, we want 1.5% of that if we're going to sell it to you and they sign fine. And that's completely legal? It's completely legal, yes. And why do they have to come to London to get a law firm to sign it off? <laughs> well, because We've got better lawyers. <laughs> because under US law, you'd have to declare all that. And of course, under the UK law, it's all perfectly uh, legitimate and you wouldn't have to declare it. It's just something that you can do as a normal part of your business. Is this an example of what people who are sort of slightly sceptical of globalisation call jurisdiction shopping? Well... Um, yes, you can. It's it's and the other lovely jargon is uh, regulatory arbitrage, uh, where basically you go and uh, to any country which has the weakest regulations is where you do your bit of business that suits that particular regulator, and you shop around for the weakest regulator for the bit of business that you want to do. And obviously, London uh, gained this fantastic reputation for being the uh, you know sort of offshore money laundering centre. <laughs> in effect, where you could take this stuff and uh, and fiddle around with it and you'd get a really eminent lawyer to sign it off as being legal under UK law. Dan Roberts, the other thing we read last week was that London had been overtaken by New York as the world's premier financial centre. I mean, anyone who followed that story about the Repo 105 might, might actually think it's probably quite a good thing for us not to be the world's premier financial centre if it involves renting out our reputations like that. Well, I think our reputation is sadly already quite damaged by all of this. I mean, it, 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 um, it comes after the Brits already had quite a flaky reputation in New York for being a place where you did the shady work, um, as Philip was describing. I do think, though, that, that, that we've learned something very important this week or this last week um, about, um, about the causes of the banking crisis. Until now, we thought it was fairly simple. This was mainly the banks overextended themselves and were over-reliant on short-term financing that dried up. What we've learned is that actually there was a second element to this crisis that was incredibly similar to the to the what caused the, the, the dot-com crash only five or six years before, which was a complete failure of accounting. And, that, and that, uh, we have a real problem now, which is that uh, I think, um, you know, everybody from investors to ordinary listeners of this show will now be thinking, they're just making it up. And, and they are. And in many cases, some of the biggest and best most profitable looking companies, the most solid looking companies over the last 10 years, whether it's Enron, WorldCom, Lehman Brothers, so on through, were making it up. And all of the institutions that are designed to stop them making it up, the entire audit profession, the entire legal profession, the entire regulatory profession, thousands of compliance officers have failed to prevent that. I mean, this is, in a way, this is more of a shock to the bedrock of capitalism than, than the banking crisis we went through last year. Dan Milmo, let me ask you about that, because you've gone and done a few reporting stints in Wall Street. Mm. I mean, it's one thing for the public to get angry about having to pay for all these banks which have fallen over. Are they ever going to get angry about auditing, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's not so much getting angry, it's about getting fearful. I think the scenario that Dan's just outlined is terrifying, where no one knows what is true anymore. It's, it's, it's sort of post-modern financial nightmare. And, and if that is indeed the case, then... I mean, the public should do more than just get angry, really. Um, I don't know really what, you, you know, bury gold ingots in the garden. Um, uh, yeah, but you so can't imagine a Republican Tea Party saying what we need is, you know, higher auditing standards. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, what you've got to say on that, it requires even greater public engagement in the um, 
in the debate, and unfortunately it does mean everyone, you know, obviously reading the Guardian business section every day, but also reading The Economist every week. I mean, this, I think the only way that the public need to engage as opposed to be angry. And when I was in New York, I did see a lot of this anger and, you know, very heartfelt pieces on uh, people based in Detroit, etc. But if they are really going to contribute to the debate, then they need to um, But you can't engage, you can't engage, can you, when you don't understand the first thing of what you're I mean, particularly at. when the people who you're attacking don't understand I mean, it either, yeah. <laughs> two and a half thousand pages is a bit of an ask even for the financial journalists. Yeah, so I know, it's sort of, you know, yeah. apologies for the, the clarion call to, re- to read <laughs> Thomas I mean, even, Friedman even if you look at that, but... <laughs> explaining to people how this come you know let's take it a stage on how a bank has gone crash you yeah. know and you look at the derivative contracts and you ask me to explain repo 105s and I have a go at doing it in layman's terms and and that no and, pun. Yet, and, uh, <laughs> and that's still supposed to be something that people yeah. understand you know and then you say well, so you're going to get angry about auditors but of yeah. course they ought to but I mean god how well, do I, you? Well I, I want to turn to the head of business on this because this is, is a real ch- this, this yeah. is no but this is a real challenge for all interlocutors you know all journalists who say well you know if only people actually read our sections they'd understand it the truth is actually as soon as it feels quite right as soon as you get into the higher reaches of wholesale finance people just think well i'd much rather go and look at what's on telly tonight i think we have to return this to its roots which is actually about the the um the ethics um uh, that underpin business behaviors there was a really interesting debate when i was in the states um for about three years just after worldcom n1 w- went under um and um business schools were putting on ethics courses and um you know you had very sort of long po-faced leaders in the wall street journal calling for sort of you know um businessmen to sort of behave themselves uh, and and actually this is at the heart of all this because no matter how complicated the um the accounting gets um, it's it's hard to imagine a small town accountant running a, a local garage or something being able to be, being willing to do this sort of stuff. But it goes back to your point about the globalized world we're in, and I think one of the difficulties is that the victims of this stuff are so distant. The consequences seem so distant when people are taking these decisions. They're not behaving as if they would if they were walking down the street. I mean, there's a degree of, these these are thefts we're describing, but these are people who would never dream of kind of putting a brick through a window and stealing a watch. And yet somehow the world has got so complicated and so distance from the consequences that people are prepared to ha- behave in quite immoral ways. And I think yeah. and that's where we need to return the debate to. How do we moralise you know, the behaviour of these people in a very, very... Com- I don't think they were fundamentally evil. They just... The world has just got very complicated. Well, there is another side to Lehman's story, and it's got less to do with accounting and more to do with shopping. Vicky Ward's just published an insider account of life as a Lehman banker's wife. It's called a Devil's Casino, and here's a taster. There was another hurtful price of being a Lehman wife. You had to make friends with the other wives, only to lose those friendships once your spouse was ousted. After her husband left Lehman, Karen Jack was extremely hurt never to hear from Kathy Fold again. The two had often gone shopping or antiquing together. Kathy, in turn, would voice surprise that once Dick was booted from Lehman, she was no longer befriended by the wives of other Wall Street CEOs. She burst into tears at a dinner with Peter A. Cohen, now the CEO of the Cohen Group, a securities and investment management firm. I thought all those people were my friends, she told Cohen, who said he felt very sorry for her. After Lehman filed for bankruptcy, Kathy stayed on the MoMA board, but was no longer in contention for the chairmanship. She just wasn't rich enough anymore. Over the past year and a half, the Folds sold some of Kathy's art collection for $13.5 million and their 16-room Park Avenue apartment for $25.87 million. She learned something that other layman wives had learned before her. 
When your husband leaves Layman, you become a ghost. But in Kathy's case, Layman had become a ghost along with her. Dan Roberts, uh, apart from antique shopping, um, this book throws a quite a good light on organisational culture because one of the points it keeps making is that the, the, the organisational culture at Lehman Brothers was extremely close-knit. It was almost cult-like. Yeah, I think this is something that um, a, a lot of companies that got into trouble share, actually. Um, I was r- reminded in all sorts of ways in the last week or so how much Lehman pe- echoed um, Enron. And, and actually, um, uh, some of the, 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 the sort of cult-like um, um, behaviour you saw, not just among the execs, but also among the family and the wives, um, was similar at Enron. And, and, and uh, many other companies have got into trouble. I do think that if you're going to behave, if you're going to expect people to sort of give up their entire lives to a business, these are, these are bankers that you know think nothing of working twenty hour days or whatever. You've got to suck their whole family into this too. And if you're going to behave, get, expect them to suspend a certain degree of personal morality along the way as well, you need to have that Stepford Wives cult thing going on. And um, I think this book is actually um, fascinating because uh, it's one of the first business books I've seen for a while that gets at some of that. Dan Milmo, you work in, uh, well, you cover one of the industries where there's plenty of books about what airline flight attendants get up to in their spare time. Um, Mm. How much credence? They normally have the word Babylon in the title. I mean, how, how how much credence do these books have, do you think? Um, what in terms of are they are they true? Yeah. Um, well, I think in the case of BA, I've seen I've seen a list of extraordinary incidents that one crew have encountered. They they wrote them down one day on a long haul flight and sent them to me when all the strike stuff was going on. And it, you know, apart from the appearance of Lord Lucan, um, which didn't happen, but that's about the only other thing that didn't. And um, what sort of um, things are we talking about? Extraordinary stuff like um, uh, seven specific bomb threats, uh, a number of uh, obscure medical ailments, including. Uh, I don't know how you do that. I mean, perhaps we can do this next week, but reinflating someone's lung with a coat hanger or something like that. Um, you know, so basically, if you work in an industry where you're flying 300 people on a daily basis, uh, long distances, with many of whom have different medical ailments, with a, an industry with lots of security problems, and where a lot of people's idea of fun on a 12-hour flight is to drink the trolley dry, then you are going to have extraordinary tales. Um, and I certainly uh, don't discount those Babylon books, not that I recommend buying them. And on that happy note, that's all for today. Next week, we'll be back with a special podcast on the budget next Wednesday. And as a bonus, we'll have an exclusive interview with Nobel laureate Amata Shen. Find that next Tuesday, as always, at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. Thank you to all my guests. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. This has been The Business.